0: Hi all, welcome to another episode in the Leading Safely podcast. Now, today's special guest, I've been interested in their work for a few years. In 2020, he completed the Brady Review, an investigation into the causes of fatalities in the mining industry in Queensland, Australia. This review analysed 20 years of incident and fatality information was data-driven and culminated in 11 recommendations for both industry and the regulator on how to lower the fatality and incident rate. His work is hard-hitting and impactful. My special guest today is none other than Sean Brady, a forensic engineer who works with business, government and the legal sector to investigate and resolve complex issues that typically require a systems approach. Sean has acted as an expert witness in numerous proceedings involving a wide range of constructed facilities. He's a director of the Society of Construction Law Australia and a member of the Singapore International Mediation Centre's panel of experts. Let's listen in now as we hear Sean answer my three questions and speak to us about the importance of having decent data, being able to utilise this data to identify risks. So hi Sean, um thanks for taking time out of your busy day to meet with me. As you know, I do ask all of my uh, guests the same three general questions and I'm eager to hear your responses. So we're going to take a little bit of an organizational spin to these three questions. and um, what do you think makes an effective organization when it comes to health and safety?
1: Yeah, so there's a there's a there's a long answer here. I mean safety, one way of thinking about it, or the way I've started to think about it, and whether I'm right about this theory or not, is that I think many organisations work out how they're going to um, do the work. If they're going to get something out of the ground. How do you get it out of the ground? If you're going to build something, how you're going to build something in the in the most efficient way possible? And I think they work out how to do that. And then when they've worked out how to do that, what happens next is they say, "Oh yes, but we need to do it safely, and we need to do it from an environmental perspective." And they sort of add those ideas those the departments off to the side and they now have to essentially police in many ways the way we're doing the work and i think f- for me it's about saying well let's set up our organization to do it safely first and we're going to talk about some organizations who who do that high reliability organizations but it's about not saying safety is something that sits out on the side it's about saying safety is is how we do things and what's ironic i think about this is that many of the organizations who do this are also the same organizations that say safety is our first priority but they've actually set themselves up to do the work first so i think taking a view that we do things in a way that are fundamentally safe and we get good outcomes for that is an unusual um way of going about it now that may strike people as a little bit strange um, but I think if we have a hard look at how we set up our organisations, we do tend to put safety out on the side and, and and then expect it to do a lot of heavy lifting to keep people safe. Much better to work out how can we do work reliably and predictably, and we'll come back to that, um, because then safety is the outcome from that rather than the bolt on at the end.
0: Yeah, I think once people start to see that safety is an outcome, um yeah things will start to change a little bit so what about I guess those organizations that don't want to change or progress along their health and safety journey or what kind of words of wisdom would you give them
1: yeah this is this is this is hard I mean I think a lot of organizations um don't want to change um and there's some very good reasons why they don't want to change and I think it's worthwhile sort of pulling that apart a little bit so I think if you look at how organizations mature from a a safety perspective you know they start off in that very reactive phase that you know if, if they're caught doing something wrong that's a problem and then they they move up um and and start to become a little better and put some safety systems in place you know they're pathological first then they're 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 reactive and then they get to compliance and they get all the rules in place, they get all the systems in place. They drag people kicking and screaming to the point of of compliance. And that gets huge rewards. There's no no doubt about it in in high hazard industries, that gets huge rewards. The problem is, it only gets you so far. And the next stage after that, the proactive stage, um, you can't get there by being more compliant because you just bury yourselves in systems and you bury yourselves in, in, in paperwork. And I think the really hard thing is if you have it, are in an organization and you have dragged it kicking and screaming to this compliance place, and you have seen the significant benefits and rewards from doing that. I think it's very hard to say, what, what do you mean? I have to dial back some of this to go to the next level. I mean, we've got so much safer by doing this stuff. I think what I would say from an organizational perspective is that yes, compliance has got you here, but it won't get you the next stage. But now it's about actually looking at the outcomes you get from these compliance systems. What compliance work do you do that actually makes you safer? What compliance work do you do that it doesn't? That is a burden. And how do you get your people to start talking to you about what that is, so you can start decluttering the stuff that's not getting you any benefits and probably causing you harm, um, to get back to the stuff that actually makes a makes a difference with people. But I think that's the key. Getting to compliance was so hard. Mm, do I really have to change things when I when I try and go to the next level? I think the other bit that fits in on this is particularly in, in engineering organizations with lots of engineers, and I'm an engineer, so I can say this without banging out, bashing out engineers. But I think we still, in many organizations, believe we can design the perfect system. We believe we can find, design the perfect system, keep our people safe. And if they just follow the system, we're going to be OK. And when they don't follow the system, we need to get them mm-hmm. and we need to discipline them and we need to make an e- example by doing that. And that's just part of this compliance way of doing things and the reality is you can't design the perfect system um, because it's got people in it and the work changes (laughs) and the environment changes and until we actually get organizations to sort of admit to themselves we can't design a perfect system, which is a really hard admission to make, we're not really going to make progress. When we look at the organizations who have made progress and the industries who have made progress, they're the ones who admit we can't make a, a perfect system. Now, how do we learn when it's in, where it's imperfect and how do we go and continuously repair that system or make it more resilient and more re- robust? Hmm. <laughs> that is a
0: good question though, isn't it? And organizations that use compliance to determine, you know, various outcomes in certain investigations and that kind of thing without understanding the learnings that come from those situations as well. It's also a little curious area for sure.
1: Yeah, it's the I'm a still big fan of the old adage, you, you can blame or you can learn, but it's incredibly difficult to do both. But I think this is the, the conundrum. You know, if you believe you've built the cert, the perfect system why on earth would you have to learn? So I can see why blame becomes the sort of default you know, thing to do there.
0: Sure, and obviously with your work, you're dealing with organisations that are at various um, levels within the safety journey. Um, if you could invent or create something that would help these organisations move along their way and progress, what would you invent or create other than obviously all the great work you've already done already and um, what would it be and why
1: i think the big opportunity there is with data um it's incredible you know organisations particularly high hazard, hazard organisations will spend a fortune collecting data on absolutely everything and then they don't look at the data they just don't look at the data. The only data that seems to be looked at, and this is obviously an exaggeration, but the data that tends to get looked at is the data that relates to, to KPIs. So suddenly um, you know, an organization will set a bunch of metrics and the data that relates to them is what everyone obsesses over and, and sweats over. And what we see is you'll, you'll have some sort of an incident or some sort of a scare, and people will start to dig into the data and oh, loads of warning signs is sitting in that data um, that are just not being picked up. You know, when we sort of started looking at data, we went down a very heavy machine learning path and a big data science path. We discovered that the big rewards are just reading the data. It's it's quite incredible when you read a client's data because you realize pretty quickly that many cases this data has not been not being read. So there's a huge opportunity for organizations to use their data. I mean, they need more than just data, but let's start there for the moment. And this comes back to the concept of if you genuinely believe you can't design a perfect system, then good data is the tool you need to understand where your imperfect system is imperfect. And then you go and you fix those gaps, you plug those those gaps. If you're not getting that data, you're blind to where your gaps are in your system. And it's very, very difficult to try and get on top of them and and fix them. Now, fixing data is multi stage. And I would say you got to you got to go through the life cycle of it, you know, you got to get your people recognizing what that is important and what's not, you got to get it being put into the system. In a way that it is easily sorted that the really important stuff floats to the top and there's lots of different things we can talk about there um you need methods of when things need to be investigated that you don't clog the system with investigation after investigation that you're only investigating the right things you need to make sure your investigation is actually achieving learning and then you need to make sure that the actions you're putting in place are actually going to to make a difference so The problem with that is once you open it, it's a Pandora's box. You have to actually start doing something with it. And there's a lot of work in doing stuff with it. But the rewards can be very powerful because what you're able to do is you're able to, as a senior leader in an organization, really ask yourself, is this place working the way I think it's working? And it's really only when you get good visibility on that data that you'll start to be able to make those decisions. And I think one thing that is terribly important about data, which we get wrong, is that human beings don't care about data. We don't care about it at all. We we say we do, but we don't. Um, We care about meaning and we're not always good at setting up our systems to extract meaning from data. And the way you extract meaning from data is by highlighting contrasts. It's about highlighting, well, we expected to see this and we didn't. There's meaning in that when we start digging into it. So I think there's a whole piece of work on getting good data into the system, making sure the system separates out the data and and makes the stuff you really want to know flow to the top and then find a way to actually get meaning extracted from that so that you as a leader in a business can start to make more informed decisions about where your system's weak and the gaps you got to plug in it
0: okay so does
1: that mean your answer is a tool that helps an organization with good data i think that less a tool more the concept that the data oh. is your friend. okay um, I, I think a lot <laughs> of people a lot of people collect data and they're not sure why they do. I think if we asked a lot of organizations, why do you collect data and all these things? And, and people say, well, I think I think we want to know. You know, we want to know about all those things. Okay, how do you look at that data? Oh, we, we don't really look at that data. And it's about framing the data as something you use to tell you what's wrong with your system. That's that's the key. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And a really good example is, is data on critical controls. So, yeah. you know, people have a critical control program and they go out and they're going to check all the critical controls. Mm-hmm. Now, do you believe that the reason why you as an organization are doing that is to confirm that the critical controls are working properly? Well, if that's the objective, then a good day for you looks like when all those critical controls come back green. If you're an organization that accepts you can't design a perfect system, you're going to know that if all those things are coming back green, there's a problem. Someone's yeah. making those look green. Then there's an opportunity if people actually start putting in a few more reds, start showing the controls that are not working. you got to view that as opportunities. They're the opportunities to fix your system before someone got hurt by that control not working properly. So I think very few people look on critical control data, particularly critical control f- failures in the data as, as a really important lead indicator to be able to allow them to say, Oh, we got some we got some issues from over over here. That's the way you use data. It's not just an audit tool. It's a learning tool. And I think that's the bit I'm trying to sort of get across the line with people. It's part of how you learn. It's not necessarily how you audit or check
0: um, that's a bit very um, non-traditional. I, I know the traditional approach to reviewing data is very much about yeah, what's in it, looking at it kind of from the face down um, as opposed to actually understanding well what's the outcome, you know, where can we take it. So yeah it's kind of changing that view on data which is interesting kind of thought and mindset to have on it, moving away from traditional thinking. And it's, uh, so, oh, yeah, it, you're
1: right. it's quite it's quite compelling when you go back to senior your leaders after you've been in their data for a while um mm-hmm. and it for a few reasons one you'll you do come away with an understanding or the beginnings of an understanding of what's important in an organization even by looking at their, their data um but then when you're presenting that back to senior leaders it's their data so there's the, that can be quite a, an educational, but also confronting experience because yeah. this is this is not our interpretation of your data. It's an interpretation of your data. Do you agree? Do you disagree? And and that can start some really powerful and good discussions. Interesting.
0: Okay. And um, I understand obviously that you've given us some really great answers there, and there's a lot there's a lot in there to unpack. Uh, but I think you're going to be telling us a little bit more about you've got a new podcast out with Complexity Science um, and obviously you've done a lot of work around high reliability organisations.
1: Yeah, so we got your podcast out called Simplifying Complexity and, and we got interested in complexity probably about five or six years ago. Um, I got interested in particularly from the perspective of it's a way of thinking about how systems fail and it's a way of thinking about how systems work and i think if you want to start looking at big companies who work in high hazard industries you got to start thinking them as complex systems um and when you do that you end up with these whole range of principles and these whole range of tools that you can then bring to bear on the problems you're you're trying to solve so probably start with well, what's a complex system there's a whole range of definitions but fundamentally it's a system that's more than the sum of its parts and that sounds a bit wishy-washy but it's systems that are not that easy to predict um systems that look like they've got a life of their own you know the the big examples that are often rolled out you know the economy is a system you know we can start to predict it but then it can go a bit nuts on us um ecologies are the same you can look at a forest and understand how it's working but then that forest can change suddenly and why why does that happen and i think definitely the way big companies work um, is definitely a complex system. And it turns out that we humans are are, are pretty bad at understanding how systems work. We think we're good, but we're we're actually not. And the reason why we're not good at it is that we're sort of trained that if you want to understand how something works, you break it down into its parts. And by understanding how each part works, you know how the whole thing works. Um, So you can put it back together again. And you can do that with a car. You can break the parts down and, and you know how the car works and you can predict what the car is going to do. But in complex systems, you don't see that. Um, when you go and you you break this system down, um, you lose something in the breaking down of it. Now, there's a wonderful example, which I quite like is, let's say you want to understand how your garden works. Well, you can go out to your garden, you can capture every animal and every bird and every insect, and you can take a snippet of every flower and you can study every one of them and you're going to learn a lot. But you're still gonna have no clue how your garden works. Because it's how they all interact together in that ecology that produces the garden. And, and we say that that emergent behavior is the term we use of whatever we see emerging out of the garden is an interplay of all those different species interacting with with one another. And what that really means is it's the interactions between these components of these agents in a city in a system that really matters. And and this is where we run into trouble because we're traditionally trained that they don't break the system down into its components, you understand the system. But in these complex systems, once we do that, we lose the interactions. And it's the interactions that really tell us how things happen. And if we transport that to companies, what we end up with is, you know, we look at a company, is the safety of that company solely dependent on the safety department? that component in the system. And, and we know it's not. We know they can be very influential, but we know how they relate to senior management and how much power there is, is going to be terribly important. We know how, how the role of production and operations and how all that interacts together is going to be important. So when we put all those pieces of this organisation together, suddenly how safe the safety department gets to interact with everyone, where the power is, how everyone's rewarded, how everyone's penalised, that will ultimately govern the level of safety you have on the site. Safety is an emergent property. It's an outcome from that complex system. And I think that becomes really a helpful way to think about an organization, because instead of saying, what's the quality of compliance, what's the quality of the safety department, what you're actually saying when you look at the organization is, how is this organization work? How are all the different pieces of interacting with one another? If you've got an excellent technical safety department who are technically really good, but production is given all the power because of the way the organizational structure works, then your overall safety will suffer. Because that's the way the interactions are going to drive it. And a lot of the reasons why you go looking at the data and you go talking to the people, is it's only by doing that that you start to understand how those interactions in the system actually work. And we spend a lot of our time saying, yes, but how do those departments, how do those individuals, how do those roles interact with one another, Um, because that tells us most about the system like one of the the things we found really really useful is you can look at reporting culture so you can look at the incidents that are reported and you can learn a lot about reporting culture you can also go and have a chat with hr and finalize how find out how they discipline their people that's going to tell you almost as much about reporting culture as the data itself so that's that interaction, you know, suddenly you have how people are disciplined, drive, and how often they report what they report. And that can be quite independent of the actual hazards they're actually dealing with on a, on a day-to-day basis. And this ultimately is why you can't design a perfect system. Because even if you design it, all these interactions you have on- as the designer, and this thing organically sorts itself out. This organization sorts itself out. And that's what you're trying to understand. You're trying to understand how is this place actually working? And the concept of high reliability organizations is really about saying, Hey, we know we're in a complex system. We know we can't design a complex system. We know the interactions are going to be incredibly important in this system. Now, how do we use the principles of high reliability organisations to study the organisation to try and drive? I suppose you'd say healthier interactions that produces a more safer site. And. The key thing is you're not after a safer site per se. You're after a more reliable, more predictable site. And the only way you get predictable is by understanding what made you unpredictable. I know that sounds obvious. The only way you understand when you're unpredictable is look at your data, talk to people. When do the jobs not go well? What goes wrong on the jobs? By understanding that and genuinely fixing those problems, you start to make your system more predictable. When it's more predictable, you end up with a safer system. That's the outcome, and that's really, in a nutshell, what high reliability organization theory is trying to drive.
0: Great, thanks for that. And are there any, I guess, major players, organizations? Obviously, you can't divulge their names or anything. But are there any major industries at the moment that are definitely going down the line of becoming HRO?
1: Oh there are some that are definitely further down. I mean the obvious one is the airline industry, um yep. commercial airline industry, you know. And and you know what's the definition of a high reliability organization? It's an organization that works in a high hazard industry but has very few incidents and yeah. You know, it, air travel has done such a good job that we think of it as being very very safe, you know, and it is. But when you think yeah. about the hazards that are being managed, they're they're very very significant. So they're much further down that path. Um I think you know mining still is very much in the compliance space um there are pockets who who are trying to to do it differently um oil and gas is a bit further on um but certainly they're not perfect um one of the interesting comments i i heard early on uh, when our review came out was uh, you get in strange arguments in in the mining industry about well people just have to try harder people have to stay more aware of the surroundings they just have to try harder they have to be safer harder that's what they have yeah. to do and if, if they were if they tried harder at safety it would be okay and they just <laughs> completely ignore you know fallibility like humans we we make mistakes there's yeah. th- there's no un- infallible humans um, when you go and you talk to the oil and gas people they start with yes humans are infallible now what does the system do so how does the system produce or prevent the bad outcome um, yeah, and that that's a fundamental shift in the way of in the way of thinking. Um, there's no doubt within the mining industry that there are some organisations who are starting to get very comfortable with the fact that, well, probably comfortable is the wrong word. Probably uncomfortable is the right word. With the fact that they've done compliance really hard, they've done it really well. They've had great gains, but now they do want to go further. Because they can see the incidents that they're having, they can see the near misses that they're having are essentially not being managed well by a compliance culture. So how do you go to that next level and um, and make it safer? And yeah, there are we can you can talk about well as you know, examples, when you do investigations, what happens after? You know, we say to organizations, go and look at your your investigations for the last year. Um, Mm -hmm. What percentage of them blame human error? Put that aside, what percentage of them don't identify the system errors where your health and safety system didn't stop this happening? Um, If you don't know where the system error is, well, you can't fix it. And therefore, another fallible human being is going to wander in there and you could have the same problem again it's quite confronting to say how many system errors have you identified in the last year and how many of them have you meaningfully fixed that's that's Mm -hmm. that's challenging you know and if if you have a procedure that didn't prevent an incident and you rewrite the procedure um or you make the procedure stronger is that really meaningfully going to present prevent this happening again they're the sort of questions that organizations who are trying to make changes are asking themselves and they're, they're a really good place to to start starting with your reporting data and starting with the results from your investigations and what exactly did you do with them what were the learnings what were the actions
0: yeah no that's great so there are definitely some organizations moving along their journey towards becoming hros And hopefully the industries that we're counting on to do so will also potentially get on board and start moving towards reducing fatalities and that kind of thing as well. Hopefully, yes. Hopefully, fingers crossed. Awesome. Thanks so much, um, Sean, for joining in and sharing those insights with us. I I definitely know that the team here and the listeners will get some insight from it and gain some learnings as well. So appreciate you taking time out of your very busy day to uh, impart that knowledge on us.
1: No problem at all,
0: Georgina. Well, wasn't that an interesting chat with Sean? He is definitely an engineer at heart, but what speaks to me the most is his content is based on fact. His findings are presented based on data and not made-up theories. And if you've ever been present at a conference that he speaks at, you'll need to be prepared for an emotionally hard-hitting session, of course, based on data. Now, don't forget, if you have a topic you would like me to cover on the podcast or would just like to provide me with feedback, please do so by getting in touch with me directly via LinkedIn or by emailing me at at leadingsafely@outlook.com. So that brings us to the close of another episode. Until next time, stay safe.